I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Girl, real talk. This whole, it's a new year, time to reinvent myself trash is not the vibe for 2024. You can find someone who loves you for you, as you are. You don't need to read a stack of self-help books, only eat sad salads, or like start meditating at 5 a.m. to be ready for dating. So yeah, my advice is to download Bumble and find someone who embraces you the way you are right now. Let me know how it goes. Hopelessness can often be like the come down on the side of a moment of liberation where you thought everything was going to change and you feel as though nothing, not enough did or nothing did. Um, you know, that instead of being treated as, the, the, you know, the dismal, paralyzing grind that we sometimes feel it is, um, you know, it can be, uh, A, it's a story. It may have truth to it, but it's still a story. And B, you know, onward we go. I'm Jordan Kissner, author of the essay collection, Thin Places, and this is Thresholds, a weekly series of conversations with writers and artists about moments of epiphany or transformation that changed their lives and their work. A moment that they stepped across, like a threshold, into something new, and the way that experience changed everything they wrote afterward. It was a pleasure for this week's conversation to talk to Maggie Nelson, a poet, a lyric essayist, a professor, and one of the great 
literary minds at work today. She is a writer who makes challenging and experimental work. She's referred to her last book, The Argonauts, as auto theory, but she's also a household name, a writer of bestsellers. She's a MacArthur Fellow, a Guggenheim Fellow, and a professor at USC. And in her latest book on freedom, she takes on the totally minor, not at all ambitious theme of freedom. It's a project that's sort of titanic in its proportions, a sprawling and ambitious book um, that blends theory and criticism and the personal in a way that has become the hallmark of Nelson's nonfiction. She approaches the topic by way of four subcategories, art, drugs, sex, and the climate. She came on thresholds to talk about managing her overwhelm with the size of the project and just for a fun general roving conversation about craft, her influences, hope and hopelessness, and a lot more. Hope you enjoy. I was noticing your use of threshold, which obviously correlates to your title about essays from in between. And I was thinking, oh, that's weird. I would never have thought that with that word, like, outright, like my first response would be a threshold, meaning like how much you could take of something, you know, um, like what your threshold for pain is or something like that. So I think in that way, though, which is what I was thinking about over my six minutes before I was looking at your book and re-remembering what you meant by it, I was thinking that, you know, in this book in particular, um, it was such a big topic and, and required, um, a lot of research, a lot of which didn't even go into the book, but just needed to be done for me to feel like I could um, begin writing, you know. Um, and a lot of times it felt like pretty, uh, I think I told my partner once that I just felt like every day I was wrestling with like an, an octopus that was like the size of a city block. Like it just felt, felt really, they felt really too big a lot. And my threshold for kind of being able to, um, uh, just feel like I was kind of holding everything that the book had required um, thinking about was, was often difficult for me. Yeah. I mean, how did that manifest for you? Was it that you could only, you, there were like, at, at, at some point every day you had to walk away as at one point in the book, you write about like a series of kind of like somatic crises oh, that right. you feel like were related to the research. Um, yeah. What, what shape did that take? Well, you know, I think that I, I know I had the idea for this book coming out of my book on cruelty. And I think at first I thought it would be um, more like that book, like it would it would mostly focus on art that um, that produced a kind of marbled feeling of constraint and liberation, you know, and I had in mind a certain amount of people like a list of artists that I thought, uh, you know, that their work made me kind of understand viscerally and intellectually like what 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 I was talking about um then I got like interrupted by the Argonauts and then when I went back to writing you know we were like in a much different space as a nation <laughs> and um you know I think like I think the fall that I began putting words on paper was the you know the fall that Trump started coming down the escalator and, you know, <laughs> to announce his candidacy for president. And like, you know, kind of, that was kind of the, the fall that I think I first wrote the words like on paper, I'd wanted to write a book about freedom, you know, that began the book. And, and, and then just, yeah, like you say about the somatic things, like I think that the, the time of writing just turned into a much more anxious time, you know, just as a, um, 
as a person and as a country and as a you know as a as a, as a globe with an atmosphere you know trapping um, carbon dioxide you know all kinds of things so I think that the book um, changed and became unlike the art of cruelty which kind of was like a survey ish of kind of art from like 1890 1910 I mean not a survey it was not like a survey course or something but just kind of took like this um, you know kind of broad if idiosyncratic sweep I this book I you know realized to kind of my horror might be a little more au courant in a certain way that I don't typically work um so that was also something to wrestle with was like how to be responding to things around me in a way that didn't feel like immediately dated um and then that kind of made me just think a lot about time and writing the time that writing takes when things around you feel very, you know, moving very fast, but writers have been, you know, writing in time since there's been people. <laughs> so it's not a new, it's not a new phenomenon. Yeah. There are moments that I noticed where you, there are sections and then you say, okay, I wrote this five years ago and yeah. this is what's changed since then. Yeah. How did you decide how you wanted to navigate that. I mean, what sounds like you're describing is like a new technical thing that you hadn't right. quite done before. How did you decide how you wanted to, to handle that? Well, in the climate chapter that, which is what you're describing, you know, that was obviously where it felt most acute and horrifying, you know, like, where, as I say, like the time that right, you know, the patient labor that writing takes that has never, you know, felt so intrinsically not good enough, you know, that, that seemed really clear during that chapter and, and, and in that chapter, because of this, um, the na- the temporal nature of the problem, um, you know, those five years really mattered and they, and they, and they literally changed things like, you know, one degree, 1.5 degree, two degree, you know, they, they, they changed, like we were doing actions in real time that would change how I would have to factually, you know, look back at the, inf- I mean, the, the chapter already feels outdated, but I think that, um, since like the surest way to kind of date yourself with a book is to worry about being up to time, you know, you have to make sure that whatever it is that you're talking about, you know, is not really like if I'd wanted to be kind of, um, you know, after the Argonauts, I got asked to do a lot of op-eds and things. I, I tried maybe like once or twice in the privacy of my own office to like write something and it was just like the worst form for me. Like just like, it just like, like went against like everything as a writer that like I know how to do or I'm good at. So I just kind of quickly realized that wasn't my form. And so I think that, um, you know, in this book, I was kind of trying like a new, a new thing for me, which was like um, not worrying about if I picked examples that were, you know, timely or timeless, but also not inhibiting myself by saying, oh, I can't write about this because no one's going to care about like this open casket thing in one minute. You know what I mean? Like not, not also like, you know, making sure that you just pick anecdotes or pick things that, um, uh, you know, that were, that were important to think through the problem and would hopefully remain important to think through the problem, no matter if it was contemporaneous or, you know, 50 or 150 years hence, you know? Yeah. I mean, something else that you said that I wanted to ask a similar question about was talking about trying to wrangle this block-sized octopus, you know, Mm -hmm. and the subject is so, so, so huge and is, you know, on the move constantly, like through time, week by week, year by year, um, our understanding of these questions, certainly around care and freedom um, are changing. How did you, how did you, what was the process of figuring out how you wanted to, to 
structure this octopus? <laughs> well, I think as I worked for a while and collected things and, you know, just kind of intuited my way through what, what knots, you know, felt hottest for me to unravel, um, you know, they just began to cluster into these different um, chapters, you know, um, until at a certain point, it was obviously the easiest way to wrangle everything was, was to separate it into, you know, four chapters. And then, you know, each chapter, you know, each chapter was a strange size in the, in manual, like in, in draft form, I don't know how the book ended up after all the editing, but, you know, in draft form, each chapter could be like over a hundred pages, or like 70 to a hundred pages. And, and they, and they, they felt like, I was like, well, that's really long for a chapter, <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> like, and, and given that I've done a lot of, you know, um, uh, compositional processes in fragments or in poetry or in different things, you know, it was, it was very obvious that there was a kind of, um, bulky monster feeling to, um, things, which then I was able to break up for myself a little bit with the subheadings, you know. Um, kind of 18th century subheadings that I have at the beginning of each chapter. And then things, and then once I could cluster them like that, like, okay, in this chapter about art, you know, here we'll talk about aesthetic care, here we'll talk about, um, you know, this Langston Hughes quote, you know, like, like I, I could, I could just go to work each day, like coagulating my thinking around each of those sections that I'd kind of plotted out of the larger chapter, you know. Something that occurred to me when you were talking about um, how you Im immediately thought of the word threshold as in, in the context of like a, a pain threshold mm -hmm. or like you've hit as much as you can take. Mm -hmm. Something that felt like a new presence in this book for me among, you know, having having read your previous books was that there's a lot of Buddhist philosophy in this book and mm -hmm. a lot of um, sort of presence of those theories of um, being with the problem and mm -hmm. sitting with mm -hmm. discomfort and pain. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering where that, that interest or, or that, yeah, what, where your sort of desire to engage that history of thought originated? I mean, you know, it's kind of awkward in that, like, I, I, I kind of approach it in the book, like any thing I would read and be interested in to talk about, you know, um, uh, intellectually, whereas like, I know that it, it's one, you know, not, not every school, like, people don't kind of say like, you know, oh, I noticed you quoted Kierkegaard. Are you an existentialist? You know, like people don't, you know, it's like, it doesn't, so there's <laughs> something about, I mean, you know, cause you've written a lot about religion. Like there's something about when you interface with something that some people call a religion or a philosophy that brings up, you know, a kind of different host of questions about it, you know? Sure. Um, to and be I clear, I'm not asking you if you're a Buddhist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I um. know. I know. No, I know that you're not. I'm just kind of, I'm, 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 I'm like, I'm defensively saying things that, from other people that have been kind of like, sure. Because you know, like, I'm, because I think there's a like, I mean, Roland Barthes, who's like my teacher in, in all things, you know, like, there's a really great exchange in, I can't remember, I think it's in the neutral some book where like he someone accuses him of paying fa playing fast and loose i think with buddhism actually maybe japanese um versions of such and and he kind of offers this little mini 
uh, mini sermon about how he says like, oh, but you misunderstand me. I don't pretend to mastery or something. And I, and I always had that. I, I, I have had that line in my head forever. Just like, oh, you misunderstand. I don't pretend to mastery, you know, and, you know, it can be like an evasive thing to say, but in my case, you know, and I think also in his, it's certainly very true. So I think that, um, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's, it's come from my whole life. I mean, I can remember, um, when I was in high school, we were given, I don't know if it was from like life magazine or something, we were given a whole feature in a magazine that was different people answering the question, like, what is the meaning of life? And the assignment we were given by the teacher was to like pick the quote that was most compelling to us and like write an explanation of why, you know? Um, and I, and the quote that I picked was, you know, not knowing who he was, but I know I picked a quote by John Cage and, um, I think it was just something, you know, relatively tautological, like the meaning of life is to find out what the meaning of life or to ask what the meaning of life is or something like that. But I think, um, you know, that was the first time like, uh, you know, and John Cage was uh, like an uh, important figure for me because he bridged interest I had in, you know, avant-garde art and in meditation and silence and in Buddhist philosophy. And so um, he, he kind of became like the patron saint of the art of cruelty in a strange way mm -hmm. um, because of his interest in space making. And forgive me if I'm just going on and on, but like uh, his idea about making space, which is also about constraint because, you know, of obviously in his most famous piece of sitting in silence for four, you know, odd minutes, like, and listening, it's like this this whole idea of a of a kind of liberation through practice um, that often has a codified um, you know setting of you know of of whether it's temporal or being seated or waiting for the gong or acts of attention. Um, so that but that space making dovetailed to to me in an interesting way with Hannah Arendt's and actually Foucault to some extent descriptions of. Um, freedom as a kind of uh, degrees of domination and it's like in, in a kind of space making way like you know like the, the like the, the the more you know the, the the less space there were you know the more domination kind of closed in and then um the you know then then things that were more space making you know offered more chances for indeterminacy and freedom and that the, the kind of intersection of the political discourse that certainly Arendt had in mind and then this more um uh philosophical slash Buddhist idea that I've been really interested in, in the art of cruelty vis-a-vis -vis John Cage, um, you know, began kind of, um, you know, ended up being more central in this book. Uh, and I know that you've, you know, written a lot and thought a lot about Christianity, but, you know, Buddhism and Buddhist philosophy is um, so distinct in that, you know, in the moment of you know, Siddhartha becoming the Buddha and like the moment of enlightenment, you know, when he's challenged about, you know, how does he know, you know, he puts his hand on the earth and says, the earth is my witness, right? So there's like this kind of coming down to earth, this kind of touching and like staying with the trouble mm -hmm. that's kind of at the base is like a foundational gesture, you know, of sitting with. And I think that that is so clearly the kind of patron sentiment um, throughout this book, which, which is very important because a lot of is what I was getting at, I guess, about Christianity, and which I which I felt like I was, you know, wrestling a lot with in a book of mine called The Red Parts or other things, whereby, um, and, but also in any 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 theology that has a kind of um, um, escape or afterlife, other otherworldliness postulated, you know, where this world is, you know, I mean, it's not that Buddhism doesn't have its own version of illusion, but this kind of um, 
but this kind of you know this this distaste for our worldly condition and its entanglements um, that so many religions have on offer, and my distaste for those um, for the kind of um, uh, for the ethics that can sometimes ensue from um, from those commitments. You know, it's not not always not always uh, not always you know questionable ethics, but but not a, um, I mean, I think this becomes most apparent in the climate chapter when I'm talking about Bruno Latour, who has these kind of new formulation of politics instead of kind of right or left that he's postulating. We talk about the out of this world versus the down to earth, you know, and that the out of this world is the kind of like, well, we've really made a mess here. We better like set up on Mars or, you know, put our consciousnesses in the cloud or, you know, if we have to stay here, let's try and, you know, buy a, you know, a, a, mansion with a moat with a you know blackwater armed force in new zealand or something where the climate will stay good and will keep out the hordes of you know poor refugees that are losing their habitable land and you know like those are all kind of um or even you know america you know make america great again and and you know border uh, obsessions and nationalism that all these things can be you know he aligns them all with what he calls out of this world you know as opposed to a down-to-earth and i think that this book is very firmly in a, you know, what, what kinds of freedom and liberation are on offer to us were we to squarely stay here, you know, with each other. Yeah, it's, that's a, a set of ideas I've been thinking about sort of separately for myself um, lately. And the, in particular, this, this question of um, hopelessness that mm-hmm. you, you mentioned that like the idea of, the, the moment of hopelessness being a prerequisite to a certain kind of um, spiritual freedom or a certain kind of groundedness and and ability to to be in the present or to, to yeah. stay with the problem, stay with the trouble. One of the things that has been troubling me about that, that I've been turning over in my head is how you um, square that with a desire for a future, a desire for a thick time, which is something mm-hmm. else that you... Um, mentioned near the end of the book, which is that, you know, like, how do you how do you square the hopelessness required in that kind of relinquishing hope for an escape valve to some better thing and to sort of stick with the present with a desire with with like your perhaps innate hope for a future that you can that you are sticking around for that you are, you know, that you're staying with the present so that you can be in the future. Um, and that paradox, it was exciting to me to see that paradox sort of so directly addressed um, mm-hmm, here, just because mm-hmm. it's something I've been wrestling with. And I'm wondering how your feelings about that or your thoughts about that paradox evolved over the course of writing mm-hmm, this mm-hmm. book. Well, I think that, I mean, I'd be curious to know what you've been thinking about in in your time. But I think that, um, I mean, hope, it's funny, I taught a graduate seminar a couple of years ago, back when, it's hard to remember, but when we were in rooms with other human beings, um, that was that was called Hope and Fear. Um, and the whole kind of premise of the class was to take different um, arenas, you know, whether it was black studies, ecological studies, you know, different things and kind of look at these, these developed discourses, uh, like, and not only developed discourses of optimism and pessimism, but, but like, 
like in the case of Afro-pessimism, like literally named as such, you know, kind of, and, and, um, and obviously there's climate nihilism and all these different um, climate optimists and like, you know, just kind of why it wasn't so much like, which way shall we turn? It was more like what, you know, what is gained and lost by this, by approaching all these different um, arenas with this split, you know, and you saw that with something like Ta-Nehisi Coates, who would like, got like famous for saying like, you know, he didn't see hope about race relations in the United States or something. And everyone just then was after him, you know, to talk for like, it seemed like forever asking him to do you still feel hopeless? How much hope do you feel now? You know, just this kind of like <laughs> bizarre perseveration on like, as if when we talk to each other, like say about the pandemic, you know, you see this a lot of like, someone will give a bunch of, you know, bummer news or they'll talk about, you know, variants to come. And then the interviewer will inevitably say like, well, is there any cause for hope? You know, and it's just, it just became, I got kind of obsessed with what else is there, you know, and again, what are the kind of gains and costs to this, these, this like mental formulation, you know, and I think that if one recognizes that, I mean, of course, like you say, like it's normal to hope for a future um, or a present that is, um, you know, not riddled with suffering for yourself and those that you love and habitable conditions and, you know, the best that a mortal life has to offer, you know, like that, that all makes sense to me. But I think that when you get into like our deeper hoax, like, I mean, this is addressed in the climate chapter where I began with kind of talking about this quote from Trungpa saying like, you know, when you give birth to a baby, you know, like you're, you know, you, you've given birth to a situation where either, you know, it or you will witness the other's death. I mean, you might go together, but like, um, you know, and that that is the fact, you know, and if you don't want that fact, then you wouldn't cut the cord and you have to cut the cord, you know, so these are kind of like the prices, you know, and I think that as a, you know, as a parent to, um, you know, I mean, I think all the time as a parent, all through your life, but especially I think in like the years of kind of zero through five, when you're really charged so intensely with keeping a creature alive that can't, you know, uh, that, that's in a state of, uh, you know, more dependency. I think the kind of structures that get animated about like, um, you're, you're not thinking, like, you might be thinking, oh, I want to keep this child alive to adulthood or have them have a healthy life or as good as they get. But you also might animate something else, which is like, I want us to live forever. Like, I want them to live forever. I want us not to be in this condition. I don't want to witness his death or have him witness my death. I don't want any of that, you know, and I will do whatever I can to, you know, ward against it. You know, that's the kind of those are the kind of hopes that even though we can say intellectually, like we're not harboring them, we, we do. And they, they cause a lot of suffering in and of themselves, you know? So there's kind of semantic layers of what we mean by hope that I think require, um, require some, uh, you know, kind of onion peeling to know what we're talking about. Yeah. I think that's such a useful way to think about it, that we're talking about different, different layers or different forms of hope or different yeah. sp like spaces of the self where the hope is, is lodged right. um, that are, you know, more or less in contact with, with reality, right? That when you're talking, I'm thinking like, oh God, I really do hope that a lot of the time that like, I just won't have to die and I won't have right. to deal with the people that I love to, you know, like that resonates so painfully. Yeah. Yeah. And which then makes the, the 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 fissure between 
that kind of like clutched at hope and the truth of the situation. Right. Um, so much worse. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think so it's also worse. like, it's also, um, I mean, a lot of the climate chapter, which has a lot to do with like letting go of narratives are also that like, I mean, you know, I don't know, because I don't even know what time is. So I don't, what could I, what could I know about the universe? But, you know, it seems fairly true that, you know, humans, like all species will have their day and then they will, you know, not have their day. And, but like for some, I mean, it's kind of equivalent to thinking about, so, I mean, in that chapter, I kind of talk about like, you know, when people talk about like, you know, have hope for the human species, you know, hope that the experiment will go on. Like, of course I want I mean, like, you know, we don't know yet of another planet with this, you know, spectacular and astounding, you know, life, you know, you know, not ours, I mean, all of it, you know, and, and, of course, there's deep hope that it will go on, you know, it's extraordinary, you know, and it's everything to us, you know, I think in that chapter, though, that kind of experimenting with like, um, are, are there ways in which the intensity of that hope might actually be impeding um, climate action? <laughs> because we're so terrified that if we hear somebody say, you know, you know, you know, we're, we're past the point of no returns, or human will eventually die out anyway, like that will that will be so catastrophized in the feeling of hope's let down, you know, <laughs> that like, that, that, um, that will feel uh, you know, we'll lose, you know, which is, I think what you're talking about when I talk about in the book about hopelessness as a kind of portal to something else, you know, like there are certain ones that maybe you can let go of. And then that's, you know, the Morton line at the end of that chapter that says, you know, you know, the kind of, I mean, he's talking about a, a negative hope, like the, the idea that the world's about to end, you know, but he says, you know, letting go of that, you know, the you know, action on the real earth depends upon letting go of our fear that life on earth is about to end, you know, um, and, and I think that it's, so there's a kind of, I mean, this is linked to what we were talking about before about out of this worldness, you know, there's a way in which hopelessness can be like a, a coming down to earth, you know, but not, not in a bad way, but just in a, um, you know, in a more like, uh, I don't know, I hesitate to say realistic, just in a more, um, presenced way, I guess. You know? Yeah. I mean, another, another moment in the book where this idea pops up is in the chapter on drugs. And this, you sort of use this formulation there too, to talk about how the moment of hopelessness is often um, like a prerequisite yep. to departing from addiction, or at least sort of changing direction within mm -hmm. addiction, because you have to let go of the hope that the drug is going to solve the problem. Yeah, whatever, whatever the problem might be. Um, I think yeah. the thing that is so perhaps uh, alien to me in thinking about this formulation of hopelessness, particularly because as you as you like pointed out, so much of my even just like the reading I've done into, mm -hmm. you know, various religious reading is in, is in grounded in Christianity where hope is, is formulated as something very, very specific and very, very positive. There's like a moral necessity yep. to hope. I read that moment about the hopelessness that must happen before you can let go of addiction as such an, an illuminating example of like, oh, right, giving up certain kinds of hope is actually, you know, it, it, giving up false hopes, giving up damaging hopes, giving up poisonous hope yeah. um, is actually incredibly, uh, in a, you know, hopeful in a different sense. Or it, it, it permits, it permits other futures. 
um, and perhaps realer futures. Yeah, like in like 12-step talks, you know, they'd say like, you know, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and hoping for a different result. So it's like the hopelessness would have to have you be like, you know what, like, <laughs> I, I think that this isn't, you know, I, I'm hopeless that this is going to lead to a different result this time. It's, it's not, you know, it's not, I, I, I finally believe it, you know, it's, it's called a bottom, you know, but I will say just to add on to this, that like, again, hope can be very semantic and it can also be very situational. And, um, you know, a friend of mine who I've written about a lot named Christina Crosby, who died during COVID, um, not of COVID, but she um, had had this catastrophic accident. And when I was helping her when she was newly paralyzed, you know, I was talking to her back at the time about some of the, you know, she was very, you know, she was an intense intellectual, always curious about what I was thinking about. And when I was talking to her about some of these theories about hopelessness, you know, she, she said to me one day very intensely, I'll, I'll never forget it. She said, my condition is nearly unlivable and I need to have hope that it will change in order for me to continue, you know? And, it, and, and it really, and I kind of wanted to be like, well, I think, you know, we're just talking about different things using different language, you know, whatever. Like, but I also understood that like, I'm not in the business of like talking anybody out of a notion of hope that is integral for them. You know what I mean? Like hope of, you know, a better life when you get on a plane out of Kabul or whatever, you know, like I'm not, I, that's not the, that's not the project. You know what I mean? Like, I think that there can be, um, in some ways the book is more about, it's more addressing if you are experiencing hopelessness <laughs> about a variety of things, you know, which is the kind of like, as I say, in kind of the sex chapter, it's the, in the beginning of that chapter, when I talk about how that hopelessness can often be like the come down on the side of a moment of liberation where you thought everything was going to change and you feel as though nothing, not enough did or nothing did, um, you know, that instead of being treated as, you know, the dismal, you know, the, the, you know, the dismal, paralyzing grind that we sometimes feel it is, um, you know, it can be, um, it's just, the, you know, it's, it's, uh, A, it's a story, it may have truth to it, but it's still a story and B, you know, onward we go. Onward we go is the is the interesting, <laughs> right? Well, it's like the really interesting, um, perhaps like seeming paradox of saying like, right. you have to, you know, you have to, right. hopelessness is about being present and in the now, so that onward we go, right. uh, which is something I just love and feels really, um, I, I appreciated in a way that it felt like all, all of the chapters of this book felt like they were situated in that space, mm -hmm. gr granted in different sort of subject areas. Um, and maybe, which, which reminds me of the, I think it's an Amy Silman quote somewhere in the book where you're discussing art making as metabolic activity mm -hmm. um as this sort of churning churning of something um i i guess it struck me that it felt like the thing that was being churned over and over again in this book was that moment mm -hmm. between mm -hmm. the 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 necessity of letting go of something so you can be letting go of the future so you can be here now and the mandate to to be moving onward. 
Yeah, and I think, I mean, you know, because you've studied lots of and probably taught a lot of people in autobiographical or creative nonfiction writing, you know, you really learn and you know, one knows for oneself that, you know, that what's the expression that like our brains are Teflon for good times and like Velcro for the bad, you know, and that like, <laughs> and that there's like ne- neurology that corresponds to that, you know, about like, I don't under- purport to understand, but about, you know, imprint and trauma and different things, you know, so I think that, you know, I kind of also got interested in like, say you take like the 60s or 70s and like narratives about sexual liberation. Like if you think, you know, if you kind of are fixated on the come down, like, oh, we thought we'd change these things, nothing changed. It's like there can be this also weird wish to take all the people and things that like that did rearrange things or that did show other ways and then kind of become deaf to them. You know what I mean? Like kind of not kind of not stick with um you know, which is why I love that Sylvia Rivera quote when she says, you know, like we did, you know, we did acquire our liberation that night, you know, talking about Stonewall, then saying like, actually, let me change it. You know, you got yours, you know, I got shit just like I just like I have now and just like I had back then. But I continue the struggle. I mean, that's, that's like the most kind of cogent um, onward we go, you know, (laughs) like, I've got shit now, like I had back then. But you know, we but we did, but we did win that night. And you know, and I continue the struggle, you know, and it's very inspiring to me, you know. Yeah, it's I mean, it's, very much of a piece with the idea of ongoingness from the Argonauts and the idea mm-hmm. of just circling, circling and circling and uh, what it, I think oh, ordinary devotion of mm-hmm. like the continuance um, but in a totally different outfit in this book. Yeah. Not yeah. totally. A related yeah. but different outfit. Maybe I'll circle back to something you were saying at the beginning, which was just like how how you kept or managed your tolerance for the discomfort of writing this book. Did you develop practices over time or was it just a kind of day by day figuring out when you'd hit your your threshold? I mean, you know, my life... I mean, I used to be, you know, back in my 20s, more like encapsulated by like, my life was kind of like, in the poem, you know, like in the poem that you wrote last night, or in the poem of what you're writing, you know, but since kind of, I don't know, 2005 or something, my, you know, I've my, there's like my life, there's like my life life. And then there's like a book, you know, <laughs> like I'm working on a book, like, I'm, like the book is a form that I'm just really interested in as like a container, you know, similarly to how I used to be interested in like the lyric poem as a container. And I think that, you know, you just go to work on the book every day. I mean, it's like, it's just like you, it's just, it's, it's, it's just work at the end of the day. You know, it's just like, (laughs) it's like, it's a problem to be solved through writing. And, you know, it, it, has yet not occurred to me, you know, to not do that, you know, um, as a way of living. It may eventually, but, you know, it just hasn't yet. So I think, um, you know, not, not thinking about it too much and just keeping it like my, my, my job, you know, I mean, you do it every day, you're going to make something, you know, you're going to form something, you're going to shape something, you know, just, just, just inhabiting your muscles that go, oh, this doesn't look good here, move that to here, this makes sense with that, you know, you just do that every day. And for a long time, it feels like the octopus. And it's bad feeling. 
and drowning feeling. But, you know, eventually, maybe at like the three-quarter mark, you know, it's going to start to, you know, you're going to start to see the Frankenstein that you've been, like, you know, <laughs> that you've been, you know, banging together, you know, by the light of the moon. And, and, and it'll eventually, it, it, its shape will become, you know, kind of clear to you, you know. Um, yeah. and, that, and then... And then there's the publication, which is kind of like a truce of like how, uh, you know, I mean, luckily I've never really worked on anything that really had like a real deadline. So it's mostly just done when it's, um, you know, the truce is not a truce with a deadline. It's more like a truce with myself, you know? Yeah. Or a truce again with the project or something. Yeah. I mean, you gotta, I mean, this book, especially it was like, I, you know, I was, I was also very anxious to let it go, um, I, because of the temporal aspects, I, I really did keep kind of, and also the tonal aspects of like really wanting to, you know, have the tone reflect what I, what, what I thought, you know, all, all the strata that I thought rather than the kind of petty parts of me or the reactionary parts of me, you know, really kind of getting, but I, you know, but I kept, I kept working on it so much that eventually I began to, you know, when, when you start to hunger for it to be off your desk, then, you know, you're entering like another, a, a new phase, which is the phase that you're moving towards its completion, you know, as opposed to like the hunger to resolve it, hunger to be like, get this thing away from me. You right. Know? I can't, I can't, I can't revise it one more second. You know? Thresholds is a production of Lit Hub Radio. We're produced by Drew Broussard and Justin Alvarez. Music and editing by Laura Fay Oshavud of Arthur Moon. Our art is by Kirsten Huber. Special thanks to Farrar Strauss and Drew. I'm Jordan Kissner. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at jordan.kissner. We'll see you next week. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com.